we've been in a series called Money Matters. Another really comfortable topic, politics and money. Great. Great. Say yes to preaching, they said. It'll be fun, they said. I want to read to you guys a little unified statement that we've agreed upon as a preaching team for this series. People have a lot of different views, opinions, memories, and ideas pertaining to money. We recognize that it can be a touchy topic and that people can be particularly skeptical about church leaders talking about it from stage. It's been almost four years since we preached a series on finances. That being said, it is a topic that impacts all of our lives. It is a topic that Jesus taught about often, and it is a topic that we as shepherds feel responsible to teach about so that the church can be equipped to have a healthy, can you say healthy? Biblical, can you say biblical? biblical? Relationship with money. You didn't have to, I didn't tell you to repeat that part, but I do, appreci- I do appreciate it. Thank you. I love the engagement. It's beautiful. I feel encouraged. We have come to the conclusion, just stop now. I'm just kidding. We have come to the conclusion, no matter who you are, money matters. You know, you can put on your religious hat and you can say, no, it doesn't. But it does, because you got bills. You can be as religious as you want and you still have bills. Our primary passage today is going to be Matthew chapter 6. Matthew is one of the, one of the gospel accounts. And um, in this chapter, Jesus is in the midst of his very famous Sermon on the Mount. Have you heard of the Sermon on the Mount? Let me tell you, if you haven't heard the Sermon on the Mount, you should go read it. And then you should go read it again. And then you should go read again. Let me help you. Go turn to Matthew chapter five and then just keep reading. Today, we're going to be in Matthew six in the midst of that sermon. And we're going to be starting in verse 19. And I'd like to invite you to stand with me for the reading of the word. These are the words of Jesus. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is God's word. You may be seated. For those of you who don't know uh, me very well, I would uh, consider myself uh, what you would call closet nerd. No. Okay. Okay. Let me just read you the definition of closet nerd according to the very reputable and astute Urban Dictionary. A person who does not project nerdy qualities, but still has them. Now, some of you feel like I do show you my nerdy qualities, and that's fine. I'll just be a nerd to you. It doesn't have to be closet. By the way, don't use Urban Dictionary. Now, 
Closet nerd is a pretty benign diction, uh, pretty benign definition in the Urban Dictionary, but uh, it is not a wholesome or edifying resource, and I certainly cannot endorse that. Nevertheless, my nerdiness is expressed primarily in three ways. Some of you who know me may be going, it's a lot more than that, Seth, and that's just fine. You can keep your opinions to yourself for the time being. <laughs> Number one, in grammar and diction. Another term for diction is word choice. I'm very passionate about words. Number two, anything to do with the Lord of the Rings or Middle Earth. <laughs> Don't get me started. And number three, with sports statistics. Now, I'm not a master nerd in any of these areas, but I like to consider myself a journeyman. Now, when it comes to sports statistics, I'm very interested in correlation and in trends, how different stats work together. And there's one in particular in the sport of baseball that has my attention as of late. And that is that a lot of the legends of the sport especially on the offensive side of the ball. The, the legendary hitters, that is. They share this quality of having an incredible knack for telling the difference between a ball and a strike. Now, if you don't know what a ball and a strike are, we're, we're just gonna have, to, we're gonna have to move on. I just can't today. Um, we just can't today. But suffice it to say, they're both very important to the game of baseball. Now, in baseball, when people have this skill of being able to tell the difference between a ball and a strike, it is referred to as having a good eye, okay? So if you, how many of you have ever played baseball or softball on a team? Wow, that's awesome. Um, you'll even hear during a game, you'll hear the dugout, the other players, whenever the batter takes a ball, not a strike, but takes a ball and doesn't swing at it, you'll hear them say what? Good eye. And all kinds of other very silly things. Let me just tell you, baseball language is ridiculous. Pe what people say in the dugout, I, I mean, I was one of them and I did it. I said a lot of things I didn't even know what it meant just because that's what baseball and softball players do. They have their own language. It's like, shouldn't even be considered English. A lot of it is unintelligible. But good eye makes sense. Now, if you look at the statistics, the most legendary hitters in history have a good eye or had a good eye. There, there's an incredibly tight positive correlation for a lot of hitters, the, the greatest power hitters, the most home runs and the most amount of walks, which I won't explain that to either. And I know for some of you baseball nerds right now, you're saying, well, that has a lot to do with intentional walks. Yes, I understand intentional walks are part of the calculation, but the point still stands. In sports as a whole though, a good eye extends far beyond balls and strikes. It is one of the quintessential marks of almost all of the greatest athletes. Now, why would that be? The reason for this, of course, is that the eye is the primary mechanism for processing the most important moments in almost every sport. I was trying to think of a sport earlier that maybe the eye isn't that, that important. Um, and I didn't really think of one, but I kind of thought of that Olympic one where it's like ice and they're in a little tube and they're going down. Bob sledding, but I, I feel like you still got to use your eyes. Oh, help me, Lord. Okay. If your eye is sharp or good, 
you have an advantage over your opponent, even maybe if they are faster, stronger, and generally more athletic than you. If you have good hand-eye coordination, you've heard, you have an advantage. A good eye can make all the difference. Sometimes when I'm up here, I like to pause just one moment longer than everyone is comfortable with so that I can grab your attention again. (laughs) What does this have to do with Matthew chapter six? Awesome. Thank you for asking. Well, in sports, good eye has a particular meaning, the phrase, right? And then in the art world, like creative arts, it has a totally different meaning. For those of you who are the creatives in the house, by the way, I didn't forget you. It's not just about sports. All the creatives in the house, you've heard the term good eye and it's describing something different. But it also has a completely different meaning in ancient Israel, a good eye. Now, when we look at this passage that we just read in Matthew 6, verses 22 and 23 kind of feel like maybe they're out of left field when you read them at face value. All of a sudden, we're in verse 19, Jesus is talking about earthly possessions, and we've got kind of a little bit of a rhythm, okay? Don't focus on earthly possessions, but lay up in heaven. And all of a sudden, he starts talking about eyes. And eyes are very, very important, extremely important. And then we're back to earthly possessions. Now, verses like this remind us why it is so important to understand that the books of the Bible each had an original audience and you weren't it. It's not personal. I wasn't it either. The Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. We have to get a grasp on that. I know that can be really, really hard for us to get out of our chronological snobbery and our egocentrism and go, oh, I can gain from this, but it actually wasn't originally written to me. The word of God is timeless, living, active sharper than any two-edged sword. But each book was written in a specific time period, in a specific culture. And sometimes for us to grasp the timeless message, we must gain understanding of the time period and culture in which these words were originally written. And my brother, Phil Thompson says, amen, brother. (laughs) I love Phil. He's, he knows biblical languages and he's an excellent theologian. We love Phil. In ancient Israel, historians have found that to have a good eye meant either to be single-minded or, get this, to be generous. Single-minded or generous or, in some cases, Matthew chapter 6, both. (laughs) The ESV renders the description good as healthy in verse 22, but the original Greek word is hapless, which literally means single or unfolded. Now, R.T. France, who, who wrote... Uh, a well-respected commentary on the book of Matthew, he describes this verse in this way. He says, there seems to be a deliberate double entendre. Are we familiar with that term? You say one thing, you mean two different things? Double entendre. I don't know what entendre is, but it sounds foreign. Probably is. Looks French. With hapless taking up not only the theme of undivided loyalty. Can you say undivided loyalty? but also that of detachment from material concern, hence of generosity. Generosity. Undivided loyalty, generosity. So when Jesus says the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light, we get the sense that generosity and undivided loyalty are the key 
to a kind of wholeness, a body full of light, as it were. But vice versa is true as well. A good eye can make all the difference. All of a sudden, verse 24 makes even more sense than before. You cannot serve two masters. If we were to walk in the light, we cannot try to serve God and money because it doesn't work that way. We don't get to be stingy or greedy or covetous disciples of Jesus. Do you know why? Because there's no such thing. I'm going to say that one again because some, pe- some people need to get it just a little bit deeper in the heart. We don't get to be stingy or greedy or covetous disciples of Jesus because there is no such thing. By the way, the word for money here is an important one. It is the word mammon. The word was used to literally describe money or wealth, but many theologians believe that it carried a deeper meaning as well. The word appears to be derived from actually a different language, a Hebrew verb, aman, which means to trust or confide. And if this is the case, there seems to be an element of this word mammon that carries with an implication of wealth, but not just wealth, wealth in which someone puts their trust. There is even evidence to suggest that mammon was also the name of an unclean spirit. Hold on to that thought. I want to look back at the beginning of this lesson in verse 19. Let's hear the words of Jesus. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Now let's hear the flip side. Verse 20. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. It seems that Jesus was very intentional about this comparison because he uses almost the same exact words, giving two ends of the spectrum. Earthly treasures are going to burn. I hate to break it to you. Hopefully that's not news to anyone. Heavenly treasures are going to last. You may have heard it said, you'll never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. You can't take any of this stuff with you. You see, as grim or as heavy or whatever as it might sound, each one of us, we're going to pass from this earth one day. On that day, it will prove to be very important where we laid up our treasures. It may not feel important today, but there's a day coming for each one of us where all of a sudden, it will be one of the most urgent thoughts in our mind. Here's the kicker. Verse 21. This is probably the part of the passage that we might know the best. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is, it's important to understand what Jesus is saying here. Our treasure is going to be in the same location as our heart. It's not a law that we have to strive to follow. Like we have to think about it like, I got to make sure that I put my treasure where my heart is. It's not like that. It's not that type of law. It's a law like gravity. It naturally and consistently plays out. The heart and the treasure 
will be in the same location. They will be. You don't have to tell me with your words what's important to you. Show me your bank statement. Show me your calendar. And I'll tell you what's important to you. I want to hide behind this one after that, but it's still true. Oh, man, dang it. Some things are just true and inconvenient. (laughs) So let's think about all this together, okay? All these points that Jesus made. Lay up treasure in heaven, not earth, because the earthly stuff is going to go bye-bye. Treasure in heart will be in the same place. Good eye body full of light. In other words, generosity and single-mindedness, undivided loyalty, wholeness in a person. And you can't serve God and money. What's the point of all this? Well, I would say that the point I would submit to you, hey guys, the musicians are going to start playing soon. (laughs) It's going to be awesome. Can't wait. The point of this I would submit to you comes back to this idea of mammon. Can you say that with me? Mammon. The last word of this passage, the last word of this lesson. It is money or wealth, but more specifically, when we look at the root of the word, money or wealth where trust has been placed. Money or wealth where trust has been placed. Why would Jesus say in Matthew 19 and Mark 10 that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God? Because it's inherently evil to be rich? No. Then why? Because money and possessions attract trust. And another law that plays out like gravity, that which has our trust will become our master. And it just is what it is. This passage is not saying that it's evil to have money. I want to make that very plain. Did you know that you can have a problem with trusting in money, whether you're overflowing or whether you don't have any? Possessions can still have your trust whether you have them or not. So if you feel like you're excluded from this because you don't have a lot of money, rather what this passage is saying is that it is evil to trust in money because if money has your trust, it will be your master. And if you serve money, that cannot coincide with serving God. Let me say it like this. When we put money in the position of master, our first inclination might be, that's bad because it means that God is in second place or God is playing second fiddle, but that's not actually the case. When we put money in the position of master, We do not put God in second fiddle. When we put money in the position of master, we put God in the position of enemy. 
Do you feel warm? Cozy? You might feel warm for another reason. I'm not making that up to be dramatic or make things feel heavy. I'm just trying to tell you what Jesus was teaching us. He said, you will love one and hate the other. He said, you will be devoted to one and you will despise the other. If money is master, you've set yourself against God. Now, the warning here is grave, but this is the cool thing. I love this about Jesus. I could learn a thing or two from him. That was quite an understatement of understatements. Stupid even to say. Is that he never just leaves us with a warning. He gives us an antidote. He gives us hope. And what is the hope? What is the antidote for the disease of trust in earthly possessions? Generosity. And that's not my opinion. I'm telling you, this is what he's teaching. Do you want to know what the medicine is for? Is for being drawn to trusting in possessions. It is generosity. We say, let generosity be the boss of me. It's not just catchy. It has theological implications. Boss is kind of an informal term, but just think of the word master. Jesus teaches us that we can act this. If you can get this one, oh, it'll change so much. Jesus teaches us that we can actually redirect our hearts by redirecting our treasures. Some of us, I, I know, are so, in, we're in, in this room, we're so enslaved to our hearts. What do you mean by that, Seth? It's good. It's good to, it's good to just like follow your heart and be really in tune with yourself and love. Freedom is not being able to do whatever you feel. Freedom is being actually able to teach your heart to do what it must. Jesus teaches us that we can teach our hearts. This is what, how my friend says it. My friend Jamie Meyer, I was talking to him about it this week. He wrote this to me. He said, we are already aware that our hearts tend to drive our actions. But Jesus is saying that our actions can also lead our hearts. Generosity is a spiritual discipline. I don't know if you thought about it that way, but generosity is a spiritual discipline. According to Jesus, you must do it even when you aren't feeling generous. And I would add a little, especially when you aren't feeling generous. Here's the deal, because when you aren't feeling generous, that is the time where you need to lead your heart rather than being led by it. That is the moment where the lesson must take place. I'm not feeling very generous. That is the perfect time to be generous because then you have the opportunity to teach your heart to be as it should, not just as however the wind leads. If it's not led by the Spirit of God, it will be led by a lot of different spirits to nowhere good, putting it lightly. According to Jesus, you must do it even when you aren't feeling generous and you keep after it. It isn't about the annual or biannual cruise. It's about the daily wake up and walk it out. Generosity is a lifestyle. It's not an event on your calendar. By the way, some of you need to know that about your marriages too. 
There's marriages in here. Oh man, there's marriages in here. I know, and it's not because I literally know, it's just because I know. I know that there are marriages on here that are absolutely on the rocks, feeling like they're being torn at the seams. And we're thinking that we can make up for it for one grand gesture when I'm telling you it's a day by day by day by day. Wake up and make the choice. And then you know what? Wake up and make the choice and wake up and make the choice and wake up and make the choice and teach your heart. Teach your heart. I'm only saying this passionately because I do not want to see another one of my friends get divorced. I hate it. I hate to see it. It's so heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking because it's so messy and it's so destructive and it affects so much more than just the two people getting divorced. Teach your heart. Don't think that one big event is going to solve everything. Wake up and make a choice. In time, the Holy Spirit will shape your desires to match your actions. I'm going to say it again. In time, the Holy Spirit will shape your desires to match your actions. It's bold and it's risky, but he dares us to try it anyway. And here's the thing. He doesn't just dare us to try it. He leads the way. For the joy that was set before him. For the joy that was set before him. I don't know. You, uh, heavenly treasure. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Philippians 2 said he emptied himself. He himself said, I lay my life down. I give my life. The ultimate act of generosity.